Good morning. So uh, as John alluded to, today's the first day of Advent. And um, while I'd actually celebrated Advent for years, I realized this year I had no idea what that word actually meant. And so I did what everyone does and Googled it on my phone. Um, and Advent's really just a Latin word that means to arrive. And so that, that makes sense. Christians have used Advent as an intentional time of preparing our hearts to celebrate the arrival of Jesus um, at Christmas time. And so the next several weeks, we'll be looking through the Christmas story, um, and we'll be looking at it through several different lenses, perspectives, and through several different passages of Scripture. Today, we'll be talking about Christ as the hope of history. And so before we get started, let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, for time set aside to um, just dive into it together. Um, I pray that our, uh, these, next, these next minutes would be ones that fill us with hope, um, hope that, that would draw us closer to you, um, that we might celebrate your, your birth, your coming, Lord, um, in, a, in a new and, and different way this year. Let me pray these things in your name. Amen. So today we'll be talking about Christ as the hope of history. And, um, and what is hope? Right? I think it's a word that we use to mean several different things, and at least one of those things is like kind of a wish, right? It's to say, I, like, I hope to see you soon, or I hope that store stays open late enough for us to get there in time, right? Um, but it, it's, it's really just a way for us to say, like, that, that's what I want, right? And yet, in the Bible, when we see the word hope, usually that means something more like a confidence that something's going to happen in the future. So not a desire that it's going to happen in the future, but a, a confidence that it actually will come to pass. Um, in that sense, it's really something similar more to like trust than, than wish. But then there's this, this, other, this other way that we use hope that's, I think, related to that biblical way, but it, it's, a, it's a noun, right? It's like something that we, we talk about having hope. Or we say, don't lose hope, right? It's like something that we can, we can have. And so what's hope in that more general sense? And I think it's, it's broadly this belief that everything is going to be okay, right? That um, maybe to put a finer point on it, that all will be set right. And um, you know, any, any sane person I think alive today would look around the world and say there's something or maybe multiple somethings or a lot of somethings right, that are off, that are broken. Society, culture, our own hearts. So hope is a belief that that, that will be set right, that there will be justice for the oppressed, right? comfort for the hurting, and joy for all. So today we'll look at, at Mark 1, 1 through 11. What we'll see is that the coming of Jesus is a hope fulfilled and a cause for hope. Um, because as Christians, our hope is not in um, you know, our ability as people to somehow finally find the right structure for society, right? Or in the, the coming along of a, a great leader, right? That, that will like, show us how to live, right? Or, or in research, the, the fields of science, of business, of education. These are all good things, but our brokenness goes deeper than that, right? Our hope as Christians is that God, the merciful loving, gracious, creator of the universe, will set things right. And the Christian hope comes with a call. right? It's a call to acknowledge that we're also a part of the problem. It's not just like a them issue that the world is broken. And, and we'll get into that more as we go on, but it's, it's because of us. So when we, when we embrace that, when we embrace the lordship of the one who will set things right, we can have true hope. So today, here's where we're going. First, we'll look at the history of hope. 
We'll move through a a series of Old Testament passages, kind of skipping right across the top of the Old Testament, um, and kind of get an idea of some of the cultural backdrop of what is going on in Mark, what he's kind of speaking into. Second, we'll look at the, the verses that Rob read in Mark, and we'll see the realization of hope, how the coming of Christ is a hope fulfilled and a cause for hope. And then finally, we'll talk about taking hold of hope. So on a really practical level, what does it look like to live in light of those things today, here and now, for you and I? So first, let's look at the the history of hope through the Old Testament. And I don't know if you guys have a favorite movie or favorite movies. Um, I don't want to start a debate, so I'm not even going to go into which one it is for me. But um, when you rewatch a movie... Uh, and it's one that you really like, at least for me. We all kind of have this ability, I think, to like push to the back of our minds that we know what the ending is, right? And so we're not spending the whole movie watching going, oh, yeah, I know what comes next. Oh, yeah, I know what comes next. We're just enjoying the moments as they come. And so that's what, that's what I'm going to ask us to do this morning or the next uh, five to ten minutes. Like, yes, we know the Christmas story. We know where this is going to end, right? But let's, let's enjoy these things as, as they come and really kind of take it in. Um, as if it were the first time that, that we were hearing it. So it's really important that we start in Genesis. And um, we, we see kind of right at the beginning of the Bible, right? God creates a perfect world. He puts Adam and Eve, man and woman, um, he puts in this, this perfect garden, this paradise. And the Bible says that God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, right? And that, I mean, that, that sounds like all set right. Uh, but in the middle of that, Adam and Eve make a choice that instead of uh, obeying and walking in the way that God has set things up, that they want to kind of grab power for themselves. They want to uh, usurp God. They want to control their own destiny. And so this, they, they make this decision. This happens, and God comes to them and says, like, now here's the consequences of what you've done, right? Work is now going to be hard. There's going to be toil. There's going to be pain, there's going to be suffering, there's even going to be physical death. And worst of all, you're, you're now separated from me. There's a distance between, between people and God. And that, that could be the end of the story. Um, and if, it, if that were the case, there'd be no hope. And, and yet we know that's not the case. And even as God is telling Adam and Eve um, about these consequences for what they've done, he gives them a promise. He says that there's going to be one coming, a promised one, who's going to be bitten in the heel by sin, which is an injury and an unpleasant one, it sounds like, um, but that he will crush Satan's head. And in, in doing that, that he'll crush the power of sin and death. So this one is going to destroy sin and restore life. And really, the rest of, of the Old Testament is a search for this promised one, right? The, not only the rest of Genesis, but the rest of the whole Old Testament um, when, when is this one going to come? Is he here? Who is he? And so we'll, we'll fast forward a little bit. God calls Abraham, right? This, this man living in, in a town of Ur, uh, which is a large city at the time. And God teaches Abraham what, what God's like. And he says, you're not the promised one, but the promised one is going to be uh, in your line. He's going to be a direct descendant of yours. And, and Abraham has, has one son who this promise is going to be fulfilled through. That son is Isaac. And, and so things seem to be moving along nicely. And then all of a sudden there's this, this sort of crazy turn that the story takes in Genesis 22. Two, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. So this is like 
crazy, crazy departure, right? Like radical turn of the story. This was not what we were expecting. Um, it's certainly not what Abraham was expecting. And yet still he obeys. Believing even, the Bible says, that, that God could raise Isaac from the dead to fulfill this promise, that the promised one would be a descendant of his. But it doesn't get that far. Instead, God stops Abraham and says, this was a test of faith. There's, there's no need for this. Instead, God provides a, a ram that's like stuck in a thicket to be the sacrifice instead. And so this, this ram dies in Isaac's place, and Abraham calls that mountain where all this happened, uh, the Lord will provide. That's the name of the mountain. So as we continue to move forward then through the Old Testament, Abraham's family grows, right? They, his, some of his descendants move to Egypt, and the family gets bigger. They get enslaved. God leads them out of Egypt by a series of miracles where he's sort of proving that, that God is the living, all-powerful God, and these idols that are worshipped in Egypt are, are not, right? And then God takes care of his people through a series of leaders that, that we call the judges. And there's uh, a bunch of them, but uh, the, the best known are probably Gideon, Deborah, and Samson. And so these, these men and women are, are ruling over the people of God, sort of in God's place, giving the people the word of God, doing amazing things in, in war and in peace, and, uh, and ultimately showing them how to live. But there's this, there's this refrain that we hear as we go through Judges, that there's no king in Israel because because God is the king, right? And he set up these judges as sort of his, his deputies to, to speak to the people. So there's no king in Israel, but everyone does what's right in their own eyes. They're not walking um, as they should. They're not submitting to the Lord. And, and as a part of that, Israel goes and actually asks for a human king. And they say, it's not enough that, that God be our king. Like, we want, we want a real king. We want a king like everybody else has. And so God gives the people of Israel kings, and some, some are better than others. Um, none are better than David. He's the most mighty in war, the most prosperous uh, king in Israel's history. He's even called a man after God's own heart. But King David is not the promised one. Um, but he writes this in Psalm 2 about the promised one, sort of speaking from the promised one's uh, perspective. He says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. So David's telling us a couple things. One, he's saying this promised one is going to rule over all creation. This, this promised one is a son of God. He's, he's God, and he says, he says he's begotten of God. And that's not a word that I use regularly. I, I haven't heard others use it regularly either. Um, it's, it's a word we don't use anymore. It it really means coming from or, or almost like of the same stuff as. And so it's often used to describe family members, but it's not to describe a hierarchy of like who came before who. It's to say they, they share the same material, right? They're made of the same nature, we would say. So in other words, David's saying this promised one is God himself. So many kings come after David. None of them are the promised one either. In fact, most are, are like pretty terrible kings and uh, lead Israel astray to worshiping idols. And so there's this cycle that we see of God allowing hardship as the people disobey and then the people turning to God in repentance and God graciously um, you know, showing them forgiveness and, and kind of turning back to them. And so it's during this time there's there's prophets that God is speaking through to, to bring the people back to himself. 
And the prophet Joel writes in Joel 2.28 about the coming of the promised one. He says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So the coming of the promised one is going to mark a time when the Spirit is sent and the Spirit is given to all people. This, this cycle then continues. There's, there's more turning from God, more idol worship, um, more, more hardship and then repentance and then turning. And, and finally God allows his, his people, the Israelites, to be taken into captivity um, in, in Persia and in Babylon. But even in the midst of that, God doesn't stop speaking. There's still prophets that he's sending, leaders that he's raising up to give his people hope. And one of those prophets is, is Isaiah, who, who writes a, a lot actually about uh, this promised one. And we'll, we'll look at just two quick passages. Um, first in Isaiah 40, he writes, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the, the promised one, Isaiah says, is, is coming to earth. In Isaiah 42, we read, Behold my servant, which Isaiah talks about this promised one as a servant, actually, um, in, in a number of different places. He says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So this promised one is perfect before God. God delights in him. And finally, <clears throat> excuse me, God orchestrates a way for his people to return from exile. Um, they're still under the rule of, uh, of these other empires, but they're able to return to their homeland, to the promised land. And, um, and he continues to speak through prophets and leaders. And uh, one of those prophets is Malachi, who writes this, Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi is echoing a lot of these themes that we've heard um, in other passages about this promised one. He's the one in whom God delights, right? But he is, he is coming. And so we ask, like, we're, we're standing in the, in the shoes here of the people of God, and we say, okay, that's great, but, but when? And the response is nothing. There's silence for 400 years. We don't, we don't have any account of any prophet. God does not seem to be speaking to his people. And um, as I was going through this, you know, I realized like we just flipped through our Bible and you know, this, is, this is the Old Testament, so like Genesis to Malachi, right? And it's, it's just here. Um, but these, these page turns represent thousands of years right? of, of hopes of the people of God looking to each prophet looking to each king, to each judge, saying, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? And each time, it's not. And then we have this silence. So after 400 years of that silence, that brings us then to the, uh, the next part of our, of our time together where we'll look at Mark and see the realization of hope. So read with me in, in Mark 1, sorry, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So one thing about Mark, if you read the book, Mark moves so fast. And we'll see as we, we go through this, like Luke starts with this big genealogy, and here's all the background, and, here, and Mark's like, here's what we're talking about, right? This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is actually a pretty common name at the time, um, in, in ancient Israel, it's the, the Greek form of Joshua. 
right? So, so anybody named Joshua today is even still a common name. Um, so there's, Jesus would be actually pretty kind of a ubiquitous name. But this Christ isn't, isn't a surname, right? It's a title. And it's a title that means the anointed one or the chosen one. So Mark right out the gate saying, this is a book about the good news of the promised one. He is here and he is the son of God. He's God himself. So we could really, I mean, we could end there, but there's, there's a lot more great stuff here. So uh, verses 2 and 3, he continues, As is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So today we're not surprised by the fact anymore that Jesus came to earth, right? Um, we celebrated it last year. We celebrated it the year before that. Like, this isn't big news to us. But in light of the even kind of skimming along that we've done of the Old Testament, I hope that we can see, again, these people have been looking and waiting for thousands of years, and, and there hasn't been a word from God in, in hundreds of years. So these words from, from Isaiah, and, and it's actually an amalgamation, a little bit of Isaiah and Malachi that we read, these words would, would ring with a deafening hope. The promised one is is coming. And Mark continues, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So we have this really vivid picture of this like crazy prophet bursting onto the scene, right? And I'm not sure why, like the camel's hair, the locusts and honey, like weird, crazy, paints a vivid picture. The belt like seems like a good thing to have. Um, but, uh, you know, so he, he bursts onto the scene. He's preaching this message of repentance and the people are responding. And they're going out to hear him. They're repenting of their sins and they're being baptized, which is a, uh, a symbolic sort of ritual to, to show the cleansing of sins, the forgiveness of sins. So, so we see all this happening. We see the people responding and we ask, so is this John the promised one, right? Um, could he be the one that we've all been waiting for? And Mark doesn't let us wait long for an answer. He continues in verses 7 and 8. He says, and he, John, preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John makes it clear that he's not the Messiah, and the Messiah is actually of an entirely different type. right? And he does this through this metaphor of, like, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, which is a little bit odd for us today. But if you think back to ancient Israel, right, um, this, like, feet were considered really, really unsanitary, and for good reason. Like, if you're walking around all day in the desert on roads shared with animals uh, in open-toed shoes, like, I'm trying to be delicate here, but it's not, it's not a pretty picture, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to touch that. And so, so taking off someone's shoes or washing feet, which we see later in the New Testament, like, these are things that were reserved for the most menial laborer. Like, the lowest servant did, did that. Like, even, even the, like, good and okay servants would, wouldn't touch that. And so what John is telling us here is, I'm not worthy enough to be this man's lowest servant. And then he tells us that this promised one is going to baptize not with water, but with the Spirit. And so what he's saying here is, the, 
This baptism with water, it's a, it's a symbol, right? It points forward. It says you're going to be cleansed, just like this water is, is you know, cleaning your, you physically. You're going to be cleaned spiritually. And yet the baptism of the Holy Spirit right, is the reality. That means that you have been cleaned, not that you will be cleaned or can be cleaned. Right? You have been cleaned. So there's no more pointing forward to something, John says. The one's coming that everything is pointing to. So then when, when will this one, this one is coming after John, when will he come? And again, Mark moves quickly. He says, in those days, this is verse 9 if you're reading along, in those days, Jesus came up from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So it's interesting, we're first introduced to Jesus Christ, right? Jesus the Messiah in verse 1. But here in verse 9, we see actually first Jesus the man, right? It's like Jesus, this kind of ordinary name from Nazareth of Galilee. He's got an ordinary hometown, not, not even actually a great hometown at that. Um, but then, so he, he's a regular, he's a real man. He's a regular guy with a regular name and a regular hometown, but then what we see in verses 10 and 11 makes it really clear he's, he's more than that as well. He is the promised one. God says of him he is well pleased. And that, that should kind of ring in our ears a little bit. Isaiah 42, right? God saying that this is my servant in whom my soul delights. And then God calls Jesus his beloved son. These are the words that God used in Genesis, right? Talking to Abraham about Abraham's beloved son, Isaac. This is my beloved son whom I love, right? And, and this is all taking place in Genesis on this mountain called God will provide, right? And God does provide. He did provide. Jesus came. And, and we'll fast forward a couple years here, but it's going to be in the same region where, where Abraham named that mountain the Lord will provide. And we, we don't actually know for certain um, it could have been literally the same mountain um, where God held back Abraham from sacrificing his only son that Jesus died to pay for our sins. So God sets things right. God provides. So we said in the beginning that hope is this belief that all will be set right, right. And we've seen how the people of God have always had this hope that God will fulfill um, his promises to redeem humanity and restore life. And we've seen that through um, you know, there's, there's many stories in the Old Testament. We've talked through the sacrifice for Abraham, rescuing people from Egypt, um, kings and judges. We've talked about him sending his son. And, and our hope then is not like some sort of blind faith or divine conspiracy theory, right? We're looking at this through a, a lens of no matter where you stand in history, right? Um, as you go through the Bible, you can look forward and hope that God will do what he says he'll do because you can look backwards and see he's, he's done what he has has said he will do. Um, we have thousands of years of evidence. So the hope of Christmas is, is twofold. And I said this at the beginning, right? It's a hope fulfilled. There's these thousands of years of waiting that comes to fruition at Christmas, at the arrival of Christ. And then it's also a cause for hope. For us, as we look back, right? And, and I think John did a great job teeing this up this morning, saying you know, we talk about the arrival of Christ in Advent, and there's, there's two of those, right? There's the one that we look forward to, 
and we can have faith that, that he's returning and that he will set things right because we can look back and say he, he already did the hardest part, right? Um, but, but there's this problem that I think it's worth touching on here briefly. Um, and I, I alluded to this before. It's, it's easy to, to look at the world and say, like, wow, all that hatred and pride and injustice out there, like, you know, I hope somebody fixes that. Um, and we, we choose to ignore that, um, that we, that I, am, am proud of, of ourselves, right? And we're unjust when it's inconvenient, and we are hateful when we feel that others have wronged us. So when we realize this, that's, that's like the serious problem um, that, that Jesus came to solve, right? Is if we, we do want everything to be set right, and yet if we're a part of the problem, then everything being set right means we need to be removed. And so the hope of Christmas is the, the way that God has made for us to be a part of the world set right when he returns again. And in the meantime, that we can model to the world even a dim reflection, right, of what the world set right will look like. So instead of pride, we're counting others more significant than ourselves. Instead of, um, instead of injustice, right, we're sacrificing for the good of others. Instead of hating those who wrong us, we reach out and love them. And that's all because we have the greatest hope. So that's the realization of hope. So if we, if we have this, if we've seen our brokenness and shortcomings, if we have embraced uh, the coming of Jesus and his lordship, if we've submitted to his plan and we trust that things are set right, how do we like practically take a hold of that hope? And that's where we'll spend um, the last few minutes this morning. So if you really, the first thing is, is consider where your hope actually is, right? Where are you placing your hope? And um, I'm a big fan of, of like litmus tests. Whenever I'm making a decision or trying to understand something even about myself to just ask myself sort of, theoretical questions, and, and I think one of the really helpful ones, if you want to know where your hope is, right, just fill in the blank. If only I had more, what? Right? Is it, is it money? If only I had more money, right? That's materialism. Is it, is it pleasure or experiences? That's what we call hedonism. Is it self-control? If only I could just do the things that I want to do, that's legalism. It could be a fulfilling career. It could be fame, approval. It could be quiet. It could be rest. But is it God? Do we say, if only I had more of God? Right? Can we say with the psalmist in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. So first we consider where we're placing our hope. Second, we can cultivate a habit of thankfulness. Uh, forward-looking hope we've talked about is, is a muscle built on backward-looking remembrance and thankfulness, right? And the people of God in the Old Testament had all these remembrances, and, and we have these remembrances of what God has done, right? The people of Israel would celebrate Passover to remember they're their being delivered out of Egypt. And when God uh, parted the Jordan River for them to pass through, they took these stones out of the bottom of the riverbed and like set them up in a pile on the other side to say, like, here's something we can remember um, this great miracle by, right? And then, you know, there's, there's actually this war against the Philistines where, where God miraculously delivers his people. And, and after the, the battle is over, the prophet Samuel sets up this, this stone that he names Ebenezer, which is just called, 
which is a name for a stone of help. And it's, it's just a place or a, a, a physical reminder of how God had helped the people of God in that place at a particular time. And I think this, this idea of Ebenezer's is a helpful one of how do we set up in our own lives, right, ways of remembering what God has done both in, in times and ages past. Uh, we'll celebrate communion later today, right? And that, that is a way of remembering what God has done and of looking forward to what he will do. Um, and we can set those up even in our own lives and remembering and being thankful for what God has done to provide for us in the past. And, and that will strengthen our hope. So we consider where we're placing our hope. We cultivate a habit of uh, thankful remembrance. And then finally, we listen to the Spirit of God. So Ephesians 1.13 says, When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's, that's Jesus, that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is like a, a royal seal, right? Designating that, that we belong to Christ. Um, but maybe, maybe you're like me. I'll talk about my own experience here. Like often I'm, I'm not hearing from the Spirit. And it's easy to say, um, like, how do, I, how do I do that? That's all well and good, sealed with the, sealed with the Spirit, awesome. But like where, how, right? Um, I think two things that we can consider to hear from the Spirit. One is, are, are you, are we listening for the Spirit? Um, are we listening at all? Uh, too often I have a TV show on my phone while I'm, cooking so that I don't have to cook in silence, right? Or I'm driving in the car and I've got music on so that I don't have to drive in silence. And there's no room for the Spirit to nudge me and say, like, hey, you were, uh, you were pretty impatient with so-and-so. Or, um, hey, you haven't talked to so-and-so in a while. You should give him a call, right? It's, it's hard to be, to be nudged when, um, when we're always busy and always kind of taking in information. So are we listening to the Spirit and are we reading the Spirit? I know that's like kind of weird phraseology, maybe a little clumsy, but it's intentionally so. Right? If we want to know what the Spirit is saying, read the Bible. If the Bible is God's Word written by the Spirit. So we have hundreds of pages of the Spirit's very words sitting on our coffee table or bookshelf or wherever, wherever you keep your Bible. So to conclude, I pray that this Christmas season... Um, we listen to the Holy Spirit, we place our hope in God alone, and then we take time to remember what God has done, how he sent his Son, how he sealed us with his Spirit, and then how he's been faithful through the ages and in our own lives, so that our hope would grow stronger as we look forward to the day when everything is set right. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you for sending your Son, for giving us hope. Hope, uh, hope for today, hope for whatever we're facing, if that's a, a pandemic or suffering or worry or uh, trouble or difficulties with, with family or friends, health issues. God, that we have hope for today and hope that ultimately you will set things right. Um, I just pray that that you would bless us as we, as we go out this morning, that we would be filled with hope and that we would reflect that hope uh, to the world. I pray these things in your name. Amen.